Hi, everybody. My name's Sandy Beach, and I'm an alcoholic. How y'all doing? It's a real pleasure to be here tonight, and Sue and I are very grateful to uh, come up here and join you. You've been holding this event for a long time, and um, that's wonderful. I just... The reason I like conventions and roundups and all that, they're just uh, very huge reminders of how well AA works and how powerful it is and how successful it is. And sometimes you can't see it, but when we get together like this, it's pretty obvious that something wonderful is happening to a lot of people. And um, I love your theme, a spiritual journey. I was trying to think, you know, well, how would you describe that to someone what is a spiritual journey? It's not like a regular journey. On a regular journey, you pick out a destination and then you get a travel agent and they show you how to get there. And on this journey, we don't know what the destination is. We just are going to go on it because they've told us it'll be better than the one we were on before we got here. And uh, it's some place that we've never heard of before called Conscious Contact, wherever that town is. And they said if you get there that it'll be wonderful. And so we have to take people's word for that since the path is invisible. And uh, probably the most important requirement is to get a guide because you're never going to be able to get there on your own. And so this doesn't fit normal, you know what I mean, when you're planning a journey. It just doesn't, none of the normal requirements are in there. It sounds pretty nebulous. And uh, I suppose a few people on the planet would go take that journey on their own. But most of us have to be forced into it. And that's what I'm so grateful for the disease of alcoholism, because it forced me to take this journey that I otherwise I don't think I would have been on. I would be on the journey for... I need more money. That was my journey. Or I want to be a bigger shot. Or I want something to make me feel better. Uh, but I doubt if I would have come up with a spiritual journey as I sat at the bar. You know what my problem is? I need to go on a spiritual journey. That's what my problem is. <laughs> but it turned out it was the answer to my problem. So I clearly didn't even know how to analyze my own problem. And, um, you know, it's funny, I was talking to a guy the other day, maybe you all had this happen to you, but during my drinking career, it was uh, very often somebody would sit me down and they'd start poking their finger and they would say, you know what your problem is? I don't know if you ever had anybody do that, but they'd, you know what your problem is? You're damn lazy and you drink too much. That's your problem. And you get tired of people doing that. I don't know about you, but after about eight or ten times, you just don't want somebody poking at you, telling them what your problem is. And then I come into AA, and boy, it's right in our book. It says, hey, you know what your problem is? <laughs> but the answer was one that nobody else ever said to me before I got here. They said, you know what your problem is? Lack of power. That's what your problem is. And you know, I didn't mind having that problem. Lack of power. That's okay. I got it. So there's nothing I could have done about it anyway. That's right. You were dealing with something that was too big for you. And uh, so that gave me a chance to relax here in AA. I love talking about the program, so I'll do a lot of that, but I'll tell my story a little bit. I've told it so many times I'm sick of it. It's a... 
it's just a story, you know what I mean? And uh, probably I made up half of it. <laughs> I remember a speaker got up one night and he said, my story is divided into two parts. What happened during the years that I drank and what I thought happened during the years that I drank. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> So as far as we know, we're probably making up a lot of our story, and that's what we thought happened. And every so often we run into somebody and they go, that's not what happened at all. <laughs> so we have to change our story. But anyway, very briefly, I grew up in Connecticut and um, have one sister, and she's got 20, 29 years in AA now. And, oh, by the way, my sobriety date is December 7th, 1964, and I have had the same sponsor. Thank you. And I've had the same sponsor for almost 40 years. And so there's a plus that um, is a real gift because in order for that to happen, you both have to stay alive. <laughs> and so far, we're both doing it. And um, I don't know anything about my childhood that uh, the Catholic Church scared the heck out of me. I suppose I could blame my alcoholism on that. When I was about, um, oh, I guess nine, I had this tremendous spiritual insight while I was at church. Now, number one, the nuns frightened me, the catechism frightened me, Latin frightened me, incense frightened me. But other than that, it was really fun to go there. <laughs> And I was sitting in the front pew, even back then they said, sit in the front row like my sponsor made me do at meetings. And um, I was just staring at the crucifix, and it was a huge crucifix, 20 feet hanging from the ceiling. You couldn't miss it. And I suddenly, it was as if that crucifix spoke to me. And it just kind of looked down and said, little boy, do you see this? And I went, yeah, I can't miss it. Well... This is what God did to his only son that he loved. <laughs> Guess what he's going to do to you. And uh, Now, nobody taught me that. I figured that all out for myself, if you know what I mean. And, uh, the, and I just fell over in a faint, just about, and they carried me out. And, What's wrong? What's, oh, I had something for breakfast, made me sick. I wasn't going to tell anybody because... I never told anybody anything about me. I just kept it to myself, and I figured everything out myself. And a lot of the things I learned were frightening, like that one. But I would put it inside, and I would have to deal with it. And so I heard from other teenage boys certain things, and then I read a lot of great wisdom on bathroom walls. And I'd be sitting in there, and I'd see that on the wall, and I'd go, whoa, man, I can't believe that, you know, but I'm not going to go ask anybody. So we end up with a lot of uh, misinformation that is, we got inside, and we're never going to check it with anybody, because if you do, then it, it, you are admitting you don't know. And that would be the end of being cool. And being cool was much more important than anything else. So yeah, I walked around like I knew what was going on. And here's all these other guys, and they're walking around like they know what's going on. And it turns out nobody knew what was going on. And we were just walking around. And um, never would I tell anybody I was afraid of something or didn't know the answer to something. 
I would hint around, well, what do you think? You know, like I cared. And so um, that was kind of what was going on inside of me. But on the outside, I looked like I was doing all right. I was uh, getting good grades. I was a pretty good athlete. And I ended up uh, making it into Yale University, which is our hometown school. And I got there and there were guys from all over the country. I hadn't had a drink. I was going to be, you know, the good athlete and the good student. And I was getting high grades. But when I got to the university, it just suddenly I felt like everybody else was 20 times better than me. There were guys from all over the country and they all were rich and they they just knew things and I knew I didn't. And so that little feeling of being different and not as good really got magnified and I was positive sometime during that freshman year that the dean of freshmen was going to call all these guys out. There was a thousand of us onto the old campus and he was going to stand up and go, gentlemen, we just found out there's an imposter in our midst and there he is and they were going to point at me and just yank me off in disgrace. Now, this is just going on inside of me. So, but I'm just pretending, yeah, oh yeah, good, good. And I attended an event where you just are supposed to meet 10 or 20 other guys. And so I went to this thing and that was something I found impossible to do. Was to just walk up to groups of people and go, hey, excuse me, I want to introduce myself and let me interrupt your conversation. You know, so I want to talk to you. And so I would walk up and the group would turn and they would look at me and I could see right with their eyes. They didn't have to talk to me with their mouth. I could see in their eyes they said, we already have enough friends and we don't need you in this group and we really would not like to meet you. And I saw that and so I would go, well, actually I'm going to this group. And then I went over there and they all gave me that same look like we don't want to know you. And I made my rounds around the room, and then my normal process then was leave. It's getting too tense in here. But there was a bar, and I went over to the bar, and I, this, I'm 19 years old. My roommates have told me that you're in college, you drink, and that's what goes on. And so I um, said, all right. And they said, it'll make you feel wonderful. So I went up and ordered whiskey and soda or something, and Tasted funny, but I got it down, and I'm waiting to feel good. Nothing happened, so I had a second drink, and I'm waiting, and nothing happened. But halfway through, through the third drink, I decided that it didn't work, that they were telling me I'd feel good. I didn't, So I put it down, turned around to walk out, and I looked back at this group of 20 guys that was there, and it was almost as if they had taken those 20 mean guys out and replaced them with 20 of the friendliest guys I've ever seen. <laughs> I looked in their eyes and all of them were saying, we would give anything to know you. Uh, You could just see it. They were almost stopping talking to each other and begging, please join our group. And the groups were competing with one another to see who I would join. And it was as if the world I lived in had suddenly been transformed. And then as I walked over to the first group, I had a different feeling. I sort of had a spring in my step. And I was going, you know something? These guys are right. They are lucky to know me. And I'm I'm walking over and I just knew how to do small talk. I had something funny to say about everything. It was as if I intuitively knew how to handle situations that three minutes earlier were baffling the hell out of me. And so 
Alcohol didn't change me, but it changed the world that I lived in into a very friendly place. And I love this world because I just spent 19 years in a world that I found very anxiety producing. And I just wanted to stay in this world all the time. And so I said to myself, you should have been drinking in grammar school. That was the... (laughs) That was the feeling I had. I had just found the secret of life. All of my core life problems had been removed. They didn't exist anymore. I didn't have all those problems I used to have five minutes ago. That's pretty powerful stuff. So if alcohol, four, three or four drinks were great, I wonder what 20 might be like. I mean, you know, that, so I'm back at the bar getting a lot more drinks. And of course, when you first start drinking... You get that terrible sickness later that night, and I remember it, and I'm, bed is spinning, and I'm in vomiting, and I slept on the cold tile in the bathroom, and it felt so good when I woke up to be on that cold tile, and and you're right near the toilet. I mean, it's so cool to sleep there. I learned something that would pay money later on, is to sleep right near the toilet, and you'll be in good shape. So I'm vomiting in the morning and dry heaving. My head is throbbing and it feels like somebody stuck a spike through it. And I'm just dying. And I remember sitting on the bed going, whoa. And the thought occurred to me, well, are you going to drink again tonight? I answered that question in less than a second. I said, yes, I am. What about this? You're going to die. And I said, this is a small price to pay for what I had last night. And so that was I cut the deal right then. That the that what alcohol did for me was so big it was worth anything. I don't know if you all had that, but uh, that was what makes me an alcoholic. The transformation that alcohol did in my life was worth anything. So if we had you know like a movie or something, we'd have the devil coming and going. All right, would you give up your high grades for out? Yes, I would. Or would you give up athletics? Yes, I would. Uh, would you give up your family? Yes, I would. Would you give up yourself? Yeah. Would you give up? I mean, they could go all the way down. Would you give up your soul? Yeah. Okay. Well, then you're in. You're an alcoholic. Come on in. Now, I didn't know any of this was going on. I thought I was drinking just like my roommates. I thought I was just partying. I, you know what I mean? I had no idea that my perception of alcohol was different from 90% of all the other kids that started drinking then. To them, it was a fun social thing. You could have a party. You could relax. You could do all these things. For me, it was the secret of life. It was the answer to the core problem that I had as a human being. It solved this mystery that was going on inside of me. It was solved this, there's something missing inside of me, and I don't know what it is, and it's killing me, and I, why am I different? It solved all of those things. And in about 10 minutes. So that made it a pretty important thing. So with that said, alcohol became my best friend and my secret power as I went through the rest of my life. It was like, boy, I can face anything now. I have this incredible new ally, this new weapon called alcohol. And very briefly, when I got barely graduated because my grades did go down Athletics was over. 
And um, when I got out of school, the Korean War was still going on. The draft was going on. So in order to pick a service, you had to join up. And a bunch of guys were drinking beer and said, let's join the Marines. And I went, okay, oh, yeah, sounds good. Wow, did I find out that was not a casual decision. <laughs> My first reaction to the Marine Corps was, hey, guys, relax. <laughs> what? You guys are too intense. <clears throat> Whoa. Anybody who's been in the service, you know what I'm talking about. The first few months. And it was like, oh, my God. Anyway, I made it through that. And then we all went for six months to infantry training to be a platoon leader. I got through the platoon leader thing. And I loved it. We were all in shape. And it really was. They, they teach that discipline and that camaraderie. And I still miss it. I mean, it really um, was important to me. And I saw a training movie about pilots, and I had never even been near an airport. But the pilots were at the bar, and they were t drinking, and they were talking with their hands, and there were blondes walking around in the background. Something caught my eye there. They said, well, I bet they don't sleep in foxholes. I went, they probably sleep in a hotel. You know, I didn't know. So I went up and asked the major, what's this pilot thing? He said, oh, you don't want that. You'd have to sign up for three more years. I said, oh, give me a, I'll try it. So I signed up, and I'll be darned if I don't make it. I make through all the <laughs> physicals and all that, and I got married, and my new bride and I got on a DC-3 out of um, New York to fly to Pensacola, Florida. I got airsick on United Airlines on the way down. Got airsick in the first six flights in the SNJ, and my instructor's going, I think you might have made a mistake. But the motion sickness went away, and uh, I ended up... It was like I was born to do this. I suddenly was being like the second highest in the class and went through 18 months of training and came out the other end as a jet fighter pilot and went off to the 1st Marine Air Wing. And that started my Marine Corps career flying and just it was just very exciting. We ended up having six children. I got promoted to first lieutenant, and I got promoted to captain, and boy, if you had seen me after about 10 years in the Marines, you would go, look at this guy. He's just got the world by the tail. But alcohol was just about to take me down. You know, I had maintained this facade that it's fun, and I'm having this wonderful life. But somewhere around, um, I guess I've been flying with him for 12 years. It started to turn in that I was experiencing withdrawals while I was flying. I was getting in the advanced stages of alcoholism, and then when you don't drink for 10 hours, you go into withdrawals. And now you crawl into an airplane, and you are in very bad shape to be flying. I told my, my buddy Hal Marley in the Air Force, he said, Sandy, you're supposed to take alcohol with you in the plane. You're not supposed to... You're not supposed to go through withdrawal in the plane. That, that's dangerous. And I'm going, you could have a seizure or something like that. So, But, you know, the Marines were not as smart as the Air Force, so I didn't know that. So I was having these very bad symptoms, and, you know, I'm the only guy in the plane. And um, I'm losing my vision, and I'm sweating, and I'm trembling, and I'm confused, and I feel like I'm going to pass out. And I remember flying one time, and I, I mentioned this because I'm sure any profession, as we went around the room here, 
Alcoholics encounter problems in that profession that aren't you're not supposed to have. You, do you understand what I'm talking about? Like a, I heard a doctor one time, he came out of a blackout in the middle of surgery. And he didn't know what operation he was performing. So he has to try and ask the people without tipping his hand as to what is going on. And my point is, I don't think they covered that in medical school. You know what I mean? If you're performing surgery during a blackout, you know, and then you read the thing. Because you're not supposed to have that problem. Well, I'm sure there's people out here that have had, if you know what I'm talking about. So I'm flying during withdrawals. And um, I'm sure that uh, Chance Vaught that built the F-8, they didn't have in their handbook anything about flying the F-8 Crusader during withdrawals. That would be an interesting paragraph, wouldn't it, in the flight manual. So I had to come up with my own answer. And um, it was I was flying photo missions at the time. And so I said, I'm going to pass out. It's clear that I'm going to pass out in the middle of this mission. What do you do when you're going to pass out? I mean, that was my problem. I'm still trying to fly the mission and deal with this minor problem that's going on. And I finally came up with, I know, I'll fly with one hand on the ejection seat and then I'll fly the rest so you just needed the stick. You didn't need the throttle to do these photo missions. And I could finish the mission. And if I pass out, if I have a death grip on there, as I fall forward, boom, it'll fire the seat. I'll go out. The plane will crash somewhere. The chute opens automatically at 10,000 feet, and I'll float down. And And the funny thing was, as frightened as I was, I also felt smug. <laughs> I don't know if you understand what I'm talking about, but it was like, well, they almost had the old fox, but he found his way out of this one, too. You know what I mean? It was that, well, it didn't happen, but it was um, terrifying. I mean, so I had reached that point. So I went to see the doctors and said, I'm having a few problems flying. And when I told them, they about died. And they said, oh, you're not going to fly till we figure out what this is. And I was sent off to Pensacola for two weeks for the doctors to study me. Now, back in the early 60s, there wasn't any alcoholism. It was not a diagnosis in the Navy. So you had to be crazy, you know, manic depressive or something. But you, there was no such thing as being an alcoholic. So now we have the comedy routine. Here you have an alcoholic. And all the doctors are studying him, and they're not allowed to diagnose him as an alcoholic. So we have to go through all these things, and it was just hysterical. It's not funny to me, but it it really is, as they're sending me over to the psychiatrist. Maybe it's the heart guy, and I go to the heart guy. And I go, no, maybe it's this guy. And at the end of two weeks, they left it up to the psychiatrist. And he sat me down, and he said, um, son... You have a childhood fear of planes. And it is, it is just showing up. And I knew that wasn't what it was, but I didn't have anything left inside to fight anything. I was just on the edge of the end of the disease. And so I was sent back up to Cherry Point, North Carolina. I had a career in the Marine Corps, regular commission, so they waited three months to give me a new assignment. It couldn't be pilot anymore because you have this thing with planes. 
So at the end of three months, I got my orders of what I'm going to do for the rest of my career to be an air traffic controller. And I went off to Glencoe, Georgia, to air traffic control school. I made it through the school, which is unbelievable. And my last year of drinking, I was over in Japan in charge of a unit that brings the planes in in bad weather when they can't see the runway. And um, when I got to the unit, the, the senior enlisted men in the unit, it's not a very big organization. There's one other officer and about 30 enlisted men. And the senior enlisted man took one look at me. I can still remember him talking. We, were at, we had some tents where our stuff was. And he says, Captain, welcome to the Marine Air Traffic Control Unit. Uh, there's your chair and uh, coffee cup and this little area over here. Don't you personally go near the radar. In other words, whatever you do, don't you talk to an airplane. We will talk to all the planes because he could see that I was in very bad shape. And so now I went into my last year of drinking, and I lost uh, 35 pounds to malnutrition. Uh, I stopped hanging around with my friends, going to happy hour, any of that. I just tried to eat soup. I couldn't eat food because I'd throw it right up. So I drank um, vodka and juice and then soup. I tried to just get soup to stay down. And um, I ran into some guys from that unit after I'd been in AA for a number of years, and they were so happy that AA had saved my life and everything. And they said, you know, we knew you were dying, but there wasn't anything we could do. We just saw you there. And so people would just sort of take care of me and cover for me and, and this kind of stuff. But it was a very horrible year. And I ended up back in the States trying to go to a career school where I had a grand mal seizure in the classroom, and I bit my tongue and I'm lying there, and they finally put me in the hospital, and they're going, God, we still don't know what happened to this man. And I was up there about six days when I had the DTs, and I started seeing the CIA, and they were trying to drive me crazy. They were moving the walls in my room. They were thought I was a Russian spy, and they were coming all over me, and I was just terrified. And evidently, after... About 10 hours of this, I came out of my room screaming, and they caught me and put me in a straitjacket and locked me up for six months. So that was my ending. I was just thrown into the nut ward. And in that environment came AA. And um, they talked their way into the unit. They told the psychiatrist, there are such things as alcoholics, and you got some in that nut ward. We'd like to bring a meeting. And so they brought a meeting in, and I was marched down there. And I listened to it, and I thought it was wonderful, but I didn't see where it was for me. I don't know why. I think I thought I had food poisoning or something, but <laughs> I just didn't see that. And so at the end of six months, now I'm going back to active duty, but they have to there's a transition period, and I'm still going to, in the nut ward in the daytime and going home at night. And during that period... I started drinking again and smuggling vodka into the nut ward. And they told me if I ever drank again, my career was over. And uh, I knew I was going to get caught. You know, the paranoia sets in and everybody's staring at you. So on December 7th, Pearl Harbor Day, 1964, I called the inner group from my uh, home. And they sent over the one other member of AA at the Quantico Marine Base, my sponsor, who was another Marine captain, and he came to my house, and uh, it seemed like when he knocked on the door, the whole house shook. 
And when I opened the door, no light came through because he filled the whole door frame. And he said, my name is Bill. This is a 12-step call. I talk, you listen. That was sort of the fundamental relationship. He had about a year and a half. And uh, his job was um, explosive ordnance disposal. And he used to kid when he would give his AA talk, he'd go, it was a great job for an alcoholic because nobody's looking over your shoulder while you're working, you know. (laughs) So he got me started on this uh, wonderful journey that we're all on. Went to meeting every day. And um, at the end, at the end, we were both in trouble. And if you don't get promoted to major, you you have to leave. You don't get a bad conduct discharge, but you're out. And so the first year, neither one of us made it. You have two tries. And then the second year, he made it and I didn't. So now I'm myself and my six kids are out and you got nothing. You got no retirement, no benefits. You wasted 14 years. And so when that happened to me, now I don't know about you, but I had a resentment. (laughs) Because I didn't think it was right that I went to a meeting every night for two years and got thrown out of the Marine Corps with six kids. I didn't think that was fair. I thought it was awful. And I went to a meeting one night and the leader made a mistake and he said, anybody got a topic? And I went, yeah. All right, Sandy, what's the topic? Getting thrown out of the Marine Corps. Well, that's not really a topic that we can all relate to. We don't think that's the best topic we could do. And I said, yeah, but I wanted to be the... All right, okay, okay, okay. The topic tonight is getting thrown out of the Marine Corps. <laughs> and I'll never forget, they went around that room and the first guy said, thrown out of the Marine Corps, serenity prayer. Next guy said, thrown out of the Marine Corps, double up on your meetings, got a lot of time on your hands. Double up on your meetings. Now, I thought a good answer would have been, oh, you're being thrown out of the Marine Corps? Oh, you're available then, right? Well, I happen to run a multi-billion dollar corporation, and I need a guy like you with 75000 a year and your own car and an expense account be all right? Now, that would be a helpful suggestion at an AA meeting. The serenity prayer? Next guy said, work with new guys. Take your mind off yourself. And the last guy said, prayer St. Francis. He was a Marine, you know. And I remember going home that night and I said to myself, I don't think I explained my problem very well at the meeting <laughs> based on the advice that I got. What does that advice have to do with my problem? And of course, the longer we're in, we see that was the perfect answer. That was the answer to my problem. Now, a funny thing is, about three months after I was um, out, and I still hadn't found a good job, I was selling a few odds and ends, but I was hardly bringing in enough money to support all my kids. Still had a big resentment, but I'd narrowed it down to a resentment against God. I had let the Marine Corps off the hook, but God was not off the hook. So every night for my prayer, I'd go, thanks a lot, God for crapping all over me and throwing me out of the Marine Corps. You know, I did go to a meeting every night. I made coffee. I was doing this and did everything I was asked. And thanks a lot for what you did. I guess that's really not a prayer. Sounds more like a complaint to me. Anyway, I'm 
in the middle of one of these things, and I'm reading the Washington Post, and there was a little story on page 10, just about one paragraph, and it said, Marine Corps instruction team killed in plane crash in Denver. And it was my unit. And if I had been promoted like I wanted, I would have been on that plane, and that would have been the end of it. All my buddies were on, all the guys I'd been with for a year and a half. And I remember reading that, and I and the first thing that happened when I read it was I knew that God knew I read it. He was he was watching me read it. And I, and I remember looking up and then looking down, and then I said, "Well, if you just told me this was going to happen, I wouldn't have been so mad about everything." And so I've learned there that. Um, Sometimes what's happening today isn't what you think it is. And you better wait and see because it could be a big blessing, just like getting here to AA. And so anyway, that got me out. I, I eventually uh, tried a number of jobs and I ended up with a tremendous career with the credit union movement. And I remember coming out to the Minnesota Credit Union League on many occasions and they were wonderful people, and uh, it was just a great thing to belong to. And I was like one of the lobbyists in Washington advocating on their behalf, and it was just a delight. And I had a bunch of years and finally retired and went down to Tampa some years ago, and it's been wonderful down there. But anyway, this journey that uh, my sponsor started me on is what I'd like to talk. If there's anybody that's new here, this is what I'd like to talk about for the rest of the time that I have. It's just some thoughts that I have about this journey and how remarkable it is because we come in here just to stay sober. But staying sober is just the beginning. That's how you stay alive long enough to have this transformation take place. And um, I like to think back on the exchange of letters between Dr. Carl Jung and Bill Wilson. You know, Dr. Jung treated um, Roland Hazard, the millionaire's son. And um, when he got through an entire year of working with him in the 20s, he said to him, I've done everything that I can. And Dr. Jung at that time was probably, next to Freud, the most uh, important help that an alcoholic could get. I mean, there was no place to go after him. It was like the court of last resort. And uh, at the end of the year, he told Roland, you know, I've done everything I can for you. I've tried to have this transformation take place inside of you through my techniques. And I wish you Godspeed. You understand that if you drink again, you're going to end up in an institution. Oh, doctor, yeah, I understand that. And Roland got as far as Paris. And when he got there, somebody asked him the wrong question. They said, would you like a drink? And he said, oh, yeah, I'd love a drink. And um, and off the deep end, and it wasn't too long, he's back to Dr. Young. And he said to the doctor, I'm back. What can you do for me? I don't want to go in the institution. And uh, whenever I remember this story, I think about what was read tonight when we read chapter 5, when we got down to the ABCs at the end, and it said, A, that we were alcoholic and could not manage our own lives. And that's what Roland was showing up and was saying to Dr. Young. And then Dr. Young said, paragraph B, no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. He looked him right in the eye and he said, there's nothing I can do for you. Now, that's a pretty humble statement for a brilliant psychiatrist to make to a millionaire's son 
What can you do for me? There's nothing I can do for you. And you know what that did? It induced a state of absolute desperation, which is the secret to spirituality. He suddenly realized there was no place for him to go. There was nothing that could be done for him. And then Dr. Young said, now I have heard of a few cases where people like you have found a spiritual transformation. If I was you, I would try and find something that was involved in spiritual transformations. And that's what see, that God could and would if he were sought. So he sent him on his way to seek a spiritual transformation. And that's what led him to the Oxford group, which is what was the in thing then. It was everywhere. And it was groups of people meeting in homes, discussing spiritual principles in order to better themselves. They weren't alcoholic. They had some alcoholics, but they were doing it to become better people. They felt that the church was messing it all up and we'll get rid of the middleman and we'll just work these principles ourselves. And Roland got there and got sober and then he was able to intervene on Ebby Thatcher's behalf up in Manchester, Vermont, and then Ebby intervened on Bill Wilson. And because of that, we're all here. And so uh, after AA had been around about 15 years, more than that, maybe 20 years, Bill remembered that he had never written to Dr. Young to tell him that he played one of the most crucial roles in the starting of AA, that if he hadn't sent this man on that spiritual quest and had um, admitted there was nothing he could do so that he was reduced to desperation and did go on the spiritual quest, that we might not be here today. So he wrote the letter to him, I think, in 61. And it was just a few months before Dr. Young died, and Dr. Young wrote back, and the grapevine prints these letters every few years, so if you're looking for them, you'll see them in there. And Dr. Young wrote back and said, oh, Mr. Wilson, I no, I didn't know what happened to Roland Hazard. I'm so glad to hear the outcome. When I was treating him, when I first started treating him, I knew that it was that only a spiritual solution could solve his problem. But back then, if I had said anything about spirituality as a psychiatrist, I would have been laughed out of my profession. But now it's safe. Now, and we all know that Young eventually became incredibly spiritual in what he was teaching. And he said, um, and so now it's safe to talk about that. And I can tell you that I was trying to cause a spiritual transformation through my techniques in Roland's life. Because I honestly believe that that was the only chance that he had. And he went on to say, and I'm paraphrasing this a little bit, but it's my favorite definition of alcoholism. He said, I believe that in cases like his, meaning hopeless alcoholics, that alcoholism itself is a manifestation of an inordinate longing for God that gets misdiagnosed in a million different ways. That this thing that we have inside of us that feels like something is missing in my life and I don't know what it is, is we miss the closeness of the spirit of the universe. That that is the problem we're trying to fix with money and sex and rock and roll and all that. And alcohol was very similar to a spiritual experience. It transformed us from the inside out so that everything looked different. We suddenly didn't have all those problems. I remember the feeling sometimes with alcohol, especially around the third drink. I'd be in a town I hadn't been there before and 
I'd go into a bar and I'd order some alcohol. And about the third drink, I might be tears coming down my eyes. The bartender would say, what's the matter? And I said, I'm just overcome by the beauty of your customers. <laughs> There's such wonderful people in this bar. Buy them all around. I mean, do you ever remember having that? Fit? Now, ten drinks later, I'm beating the crap out of it. You know what I mean? We're just. But there was that sense that I was in touch with something magnificent in the universe as alcohol was sort of transforming me. So I'd, I had correctly diagnosed my problem that I needed something beyond myself, but I had the wrong higher power. And so with that in mind, that, that, that Dr. Young set, set this idea we come into this spiritual journey and, and our entire steps say the same thing. That in order to succeed on this spiritual journey, the beginning is the most important part. And if you went around AA, and I know it's impossible to do this, but if you went around and saw and, and measured happy sobriety with semi-happy sobriety with hanging on white, white knuckle sobriety, you could trace it all back to the first step and whether or not you experienced desperation. Did you take the first step and come to the realization that you desperately need AA or did you come to the conclusion that you kind of need it and that you really ought to hang around? There's a big difference between kind of needing it and desperately needing it. Desperately needing. How, how it would be desperately needing? How would you you know, I, I was I would compare it to you're going to teach someone how to ask for help. And uh, you tell infantrymen they're going into combat. And if you get wounded out there, we, we got to get a corpsman out to you as soon as possible. And the guy says, well, how do we get him out there? He says you scream for him. That's how you get him out there. You go, corpsman, corpsman, and you are screaming desperately for help. That's the feeling that should come out of the first step, is that this situation is much worse than I thought. Without a power greater than myself, it's over. Now, that sort of desperation makes the rest of the steps so simple and so easy because there's no debate. We absolutely must use the the rest of the steps, much like a diabetic must take the insulin. He doesn't, after three years, constantly be struggling with himself. Do I need it or not? Maybe I do, maybe I don't. That debate was over on day one. And he just said, this is the deal. I, for the rest of my life, I will need this. And so that surrender in the very beginning is the ticket to freedom. And it is so, sometimes we have to go back and take another look at that step and go, did I kind of slide by with a mild case of alcoholism? And this is where half measures, you know, it talks about half measures availeth nothing. That's the half measure is a half of a surrender. It's kind of like you wave the white flag like this. I hope nobody saw it. <laughs> That's not an unconditional surrender. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, no. I'm still cool myself, too, you know. And I need some help once in a while, but most of the time I'm doing good and and, and you, we're just going to be miserable. We're going to be hanging around the edges and all of that. And we go, maybe I didn't do a good inventory. Maybe I didn't do that. It had nothing to do with that. It had to do, you get the white flag up high enough. Because once that's up there, then this all 
is free to come in. There's no more debating about anything. It's this, this is the deal. And so I don't have to discuss it anymore. If I just mention that as the, talk about a spiritual journey, that's the beginning as I see it, is the 100% surrender. And we're almost 90% there when that happens. We're already spiritual because we have surrendered. And therefore, we need to be guided. In the chapter of the agnostic, it talks, it's just my favorite chapter of all chapters. When I saw the title, I assumed it was going to teach agnostics how to stay sober without the steps. <laughs> and when you read it, it doesn't do that at all, does it? It says, oh, you an agnostic? Listen, you ought to change your mind. Why should I change my mind? Are you going to tell me about a higher power that I'm going to be so attracted to? that I rush towards it? You know, AA, that would be a religion. AA doesn't have a higher power that we can hold up here and go, well, here's this higher power, and these are all the proofs of its existence, and this is what this higher power is. We don't have an AA higher power. If there's 300 people in here, we have 300 higher powers. What do we have? We have a path to a higher power. And this beginning of it is the most important part, as I see it. And in that chapter agnostic, it says, here's the definition of alcoholism in that chapter. If when you drink, you have little control over the amount you drink, da-da-da, all of us. And if when you try to stop, you can't stay stopped, all of us, then you're an alcoholic. Now, here comes the sentence. If that be the case, you are suffering from a disease that only a spiritual experience can conquer. End of story. What kind of a disease is that? That's what our situation is. And I remember my sponsor said, read it again. I said, okay, I've got a disease that only a spiritual experience can conquer. He said, what did it say? It says, I have a disease that only a spiritual experience can conquer. Well, and I said, Bill, I don't believe in spiritual experiences. Oh, too bad, you're screwed. <laughs> Next. And I'm going, well, wait, 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 wait. I, I, I could reconsider. Yeah, good idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So why would I reconsider? Do I believe in spiritualism? No, I need to reconsider. So there it is. In the very next paragraph, it says, to be doomed an alcoholic death or to live on a spiritual basis are not easy alternatives to face. Do you know what a funny line that is? You're up on the stage. I do this every time. You're up on the stage, the quiz program. Okay, contestant, you have two doors. You have to choose one. Are you ready? Yeah, okay. Die an alcoholic death. Ooh, bad. <laughs> Live on a spiritual basis. Ooh, bad. <laughs> Is there another door? So why do we go through the door over here? There's nowhere else to go. We don't believe in any of this stuff. Nobody believes in the steps ahead of time. There's nowhere else to go. Okay, what's the spiritual junk? That's how we get there. So we can't even take any credit for this. It was by default that we started down this journey. We didn't sit around going, hey, I think I'll get spiritual here. And it was like, I'm in a box. i got to go down this spiritual path. Yuck. Okay. Hmm. Boy, what is it? So the reason we're going down there is we have to. That's what desperation is. So now we just go down. And then it just says, here's the nature of the problem. In order to move along this path, you have to be guided. You don't figure it out anymore. You're out of the control pattern. You're No more. You're not in charge of anything. Chuck Chamberlain said it perfectly. It's not your responsibility to take care of yourself. That's God's. 
Your job is to do his work every day. That's a heavy-duty statement. Remember that? I mean, that's like, what, what, what? That's the way it is. It's exhausting to be in charge of yourself. Take care of all your worries and needs and all that. People go to bed at night exhausted, just trying to take care of themselves. And they're, it's none of their business. What are you doing that for? You're supposed to be helping that guy over there and then go to bed. Your problems are being worked on. Now, get out of the business of God. But, you know, and every so often I go, well, he may be busy. I'm going to take back a bunch of that stuff and I'll worry about it for a while. And then we wonder why we're, having, we're not serene anymore and all that. So here we are. We're going to start down this path. And all it is is the guidance system that this is conscious contact is blocked by our character defect. It's blocked, so we can't hear anything. We can't hear the signal. I remember when I first started flying, we had the radio range with no needles. You had to listen to the Morse code. And sometimes it was so <laughs> staticky. You'd be going, is that an A or a B or a C? Beep, 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 you know, all that. And you were tuning in to get this beam so that that would lead you to the runway and you wouldn't fly into the mountain. Now, when they taught me that, I didn't say to them, what? You expect me to trust my life to a beep coming through the air? Are you kidding? I didn't say that. I said, now how do you dial the beep in? Okay, here I am, dumb as can be. Beep. Mountain over here, mountain over here. Beep. And at the last minute, boom, runway. Oh, yeah, I'm willing to do that. And then they go, well, listen, now you're in AA. The spirit of the universe generates a signal that will guide you towards joyful, happy serenity. Oh, yeah, spirit of the universe. I mean, you know, it's just amazing how we just become doubters in this. But there's nowhere else to go. We just went through door number two. And if we don't stay there, we're going to go through door number one. And so I just get pushed along and I'm going, all right, all right, if you say so, you say if I get these character defects out of the way, I will, as the prayer of St. Francis said, open the channel. You know that? Make me a channel of thy peace. And so the process of this journey is to try and step to the other side of our ego and see what's over there, which is our true nature. And though all the ego ideas are the old ideas, and they are availing us nothing, and they tell us all kinds of alarming things about the world and ourselves, and we're trying to push them off the stage. And um, I was talking earlier about a lady speaker that I heard some time ago, and she said, you know, our character defects don't go away. They go off the stage and change costume, and then they come running back out and go, hi. I know you think I'm lust, but I'm really not. I'm your friend. You can trust me now. So they're always going to be going, blah, 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 blah. but if we have a power, see, we can't raise ourselves up through our literature. It talks about trying to be moral, trying to have good character. Well, that's great, but you can't do it on your own. We can't rise above ourselves without something bigger than ourselves. And so this takes us down this journey as we remove these blockages, which is what defects are. This spirit can flow in and it transforms the way the world looks. So we suddenly find the world a lot more comfortable place to live in. Sobriety is when there's nothing for alcohol to fix. That's what sobriety is. So 
How easy is it to stay sober when there's nothing for alcohol to fix? Pretty easy. Real easy. And so we come in to what um, I like to call, the Bill calls it the realm of the spirit. It's right in, we come out of step nine into step ten. And we come into the realm of the spirit. And I call that the now. It is That's the only place that this spirit exists, is right now. So if we're disturbed, if we're thinking about the past or worried about the future, we break contact with this spirit, and we're on our own. Oh, you want to worry about the past? Well, you're going to do that all by yourself. Your higher power won't help you. So we've got to leave that and try to stay always in the now, and that means being undisturbed, which is what I think the last three steps are for is to enable us, when we get disturbed, to immediately get undisturbed. And so that um, is what I've been trying to make the focus of my program. Is, And the way it's done is by asking for help quicker. I think that a new person, the difference between a new person and an old person is the old person asks for help quicker. I feel a resentment coming on. And if I make a phone call quick enough, I can get it over with before the resentment actually gets a foot in the ground. You know how you can feel yourself getting upset? If you pick up a phone and call your sponsor or one of your friends, you can just go, you know, something happened to work today. It's starting to really get me upset. And then they go, you got to go forgive that guy and just do this and then take him around. And I go, thank you. And I can not even have the resentment get up ahead of steam. Promptly admit it when I'm wrong. What is wrong with me? I'm disturbed. And so as I go through days undisturbed, I treat people differently, and they respond to my energy differently. So at the end of the day, I go, boy, I ran into a lot of great people today. Why were they great? Because I wasn't all over them. You know, I went into the dry cleaner. She said, I'm sorry, your tuxedo won't be ready for the important wedding tonight. And I go, that's okay, I'll wear a dark suit. Instead of choking her until the police come. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? And then she goes, God, I wish all my customers were like that. You know what I'm saying? And so we're bringing out the best in people instead of the worst. And we come back going, God, the world is getting better and better. And it's all it's just getting better because we're staying undisturbed and we're bringing something to the world instead of asking for it. Now, the last thing I want to talk very briefly about, because I've had some fun thinking about it, it's in the uh, sixth step in the 12 and 12. It talks about the riddle of our existence. Anybody know that line? This is the riddle of our existence. And very briefly, what it's saying is that um, why is it so difficult to get rid of these other character defects other than alcohol? And in other words, we're entirely ready. In fact, God remove all these defects of character. And clearly, if you get entirely ready, he will remove all of them. But there aren't many perfect people around. So what's the deal? I used to say, well, God isn't ready to take them away yet. They're going to go away in God's time. Yeah, no, they're going to go away when I get willing to let them go. And and Bill writes that we like the rest of our character defects. We want to get rid of them. We want to be better, but we like them. You know, like gossip. Oh, it's a terrible thing, but it's fun. And so I go, I got to give up gossiping. I'm, that's it. And there's a character. God, take away gossiping. Unless it's a particularly good story. Um, So take away malicious gossip. And take away any gossip that I initiate. But if I'm just repeating something, I'm really just a messenger. I'm really not a gossiper. I'm just a middleman on the gossip chain. And so I'm not. So you can see what I'm doing. I am not doing the sixth step. 
I'm not entirely ready to have all gossip removed. And so Bill is writing in there, why? That's what he's saying. We, we got entirely ready to have alcohol removed, the worst problem we ever had, and it was removed when we humbly asked. So we already know that if you get 100% willing to have it removed and humbly asked, it'll be gone. So that means these things are still here because we want them to still be here. We enjoy these character defects. Oh, lust is a terrible thing. I'd like to get rid of it. You, you'd like to have 100% gone? Wow, what would that be? Maybe that's a little extreme. <laughs> is that like being a nun? I mean, what is a 100%? Let's get rid of most lust. Oh, okay. How about greed? Yeah, like all of it. Well, then, would you look out for yourself and try to grab some money? If yeah, that's right. Who would take care of me? Okay, let's get rid of most greed. And we end up, as Bill said, we settle for as much perfection as will get us by. So it's very difficult to struggle for perfection. And that's what he said is the riddle of our existence. And this is the deal that we have to accept. My girlfriend Sue and I are reading a book called The Spirituality of Imperfection. We're going to have to settle for imperfection because we're spiritual people and human beings at the same time. And so when we struggle to advance against whatever character defect we're working on, and we make some progress and then fall back a little bit and then make some progress, we have to stop beating ourselves up. Get off your back. You're trying. You're a human being. And you're going to make progress, but you're never going to get there. That's the journey that we're going to go on. We're seeking this perfection of never gossiping. But if heaven forbid you end up gossiping for a second during the year, try harder next time, but no whacking ourselves over the head for being such an awful person. We are remarkable people that what we have accomplished here by accepting the help of a higher power. If you're new, I want to tell you what a journey you are on is beyond your wildest dreams. You're not in charge of it. Your job is to evaluate it. And that's what we do when we come up here. We just go... It's so amazing what happened without me in charge. So then we realize we're being guided by something that loves us. We're being guided towards a destination of usefulness, which is the ultimate thing. The highest pay grade in Alcoholics Anonymous is servant. You come in here a big shot, (laughs) and you work your way all the way up to servant. And when you get there, you have this wonderful joy because... You pass all the credit for everything onto your higher power, where it belongs. And then we become very small. I used to want to be a big shot. Now I understand. We want to be like, you can go through a screen. We're so small because God is everything. And I'm simply the instrument in the front of carrying a message or whatever it is. And I end up having the sense that the entire world belongs to me. That you were all given to me. I mean, I just see myself as part of the most wonderful thing. Instead of trying to be something, I just end up being part of something, which is all we are anyway. Thanks a lot very much, and God bless.